This morning, I want to talk about people. I want to talk about others. Inevitably and invariably, if I find myself in some sort of social scenario, some circumstance, just chit-chatting up with somebody that I might not know or haven't met yet, we'll get to talking, and inevitably the conversation will turn to, so what do you do? And I say, oh, well, I, I'm a pastor. And I just watch them as they go, and they kind of review, okay, what was the thing that they said for the last 90 seconds, for the last nine minutes, what all did they say? And I never let them off the hook. I just go, mm-hmm, and then I do this. No, I'm kidding, I don't. And then I'll sort of say, so, so how about you? I mean, yes, I'm at Bethel Bible Church, downtown campus. We got five campuses around East Texas. Been there for a number of years. This is my favorite thing. I love it. But how about you? Do you attend church anywhere? Ah, oh, well, preacher, you know, I don't like when people get all heavy-handed about that sort of thing. <laughs> oh, okay, well, I, didn't, I didn't know that was heavy-handed. Sorry, but do you, do you attend church anywhere? You know, here's the thing. I, I really don't. I mean, I have. I know about church. I know about, you know, David in the lion's den. I know about Jonah in the ark. I know all the stories, but I don't, I don't really, like, need, like, the church. I mean, I'm fine with Jesus. I mean, he's pretty great. Um, and I don't even, like, have a problem with, like, the church. It's just all those people. I just, I just can't, like, like, enough with the church people. They're all so hypocritical. Or, or the last time I was in church, Nobody said a word to me. I just walked in and out. Nobody said hello. Or the last time I was in church, all these people were like sticking out their hands and saying hello to me as if, leave me alone. And so, you know, you just can't ever quite get it right. It reminds me of that real famous, it's not quite inspired, but it's close, that famous old poem about church. It goes like this. To dwell above with saints we love, that will be glory. To dwell below with saints we know. Well, that's another story. And I get it. Sometimes church people can be a lot. It even happened in my own home this past Friday evening. Uh, one of our members, one of you, was, was visiting in our home on Friday evening. And candidly, transparently, uh, this guy was uh, overserved and uh, ended up getting sick. And uh, threw up on her ottoman. It kind of caused a bit of a scene. So I, I did what any pastor would do. I, I comforted him, told him it was going to be all right. No shame, no problem, no shame, no problem. I helped him get all cleaned up. And then I handed him back to his mommy and daddy. I was like, I'm done. <laughs> Woo-hoo! It was fantastic. That was little Wesley Blair. Oh, he smelled like daisies. It was incredible. And it's Okay. He can come and hurl on my ottoman anytime. He's not the first. He will not be the last. That's a joke to say that, yes, sometimes we get one another on ourselves, and that's okay. Okay. I used to hear people say those kinds of things about church people, like, ah, I just don't have any use for the church. And I would sort of empathetically nod and be like, well, okay, I'm sorry that I didn't want to trigger you or traumatize you or whatever. But now, the more I read the New Testament, when I hear people say things like that about Our people, the the people who have received and believed the gospel, I I receive it differently. It's sort of like if I was to tell you, hey, you know what? I really like you. I like you. But my soul, are your kids ugly? (laughs) Like, you would have to put your hands on me. Like, that's not okay because we, no, no, you love your family, and I love our family, and I love our family. And the church is massive, and it's marvelous because the church 
is the context and the confines in which the gospel flowers, flourishes, and blossoms. We say it all the time with this campus because it is worth repeating. The gospel is the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement that God's done it in Christ. He has redeemed people to himself. The great chasm, the great divide has been bridged. That breach has been bridged in Christ. He's redeemed us to himself. And, and I think this is sometimes the bit that we forget, and to one another. It's really, really good news. The church is where all these irreconcilable differences get reconciled. The church is where all these irredeemable issues, they get redeemed. Now, that's important, particularly in the 21st century, because our culture, our context, our society, and our circumstance follows the pattern that has been repeated by every civilization and society in human history. It's not unique to America in the 21st century. It happens in every people group, in every society. Over time, just what happens, people begin to replace intimacy with intensity, I don't want to spend time and effort and, and, and thought share and mind share and heart share trying to get to know somebody life on life because they might hurt me, they might disappoint me, or I might disappoint them. Instead, I will just settle for some flavor or brand or manifestation or experience of intensity. We sacrifice intimacy for intensity, and the gospel's power gets diminished practically in our lives. Well, our Bibles read us more than we read them. And our Bibles know, because it is the written Word of God, written by the living Word of God, our Bibles know what we need, and that is to be encouraged mutually. There is an act of encouragement. So very, very briefly this morning, this might be the shortest sermon you ever get at Bethel Bible Church downtown campus, and that's true. We're going to look at the act of encouragement in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Our big idea that sort of supports and sets us up for 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 goes like this. Contact, impact, react. You'll see in there the act of encouragement. Contact, impact, react. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. While you're turning there, let me catch you up very, very briefly. Our our theme for this little sermon series we're doing in the book of 1 Thessalonians, we started a couple weeks ago, is hope in hard times. It's because this little epistle was written to a people who were experiencing opposition, resistance, struggle, and strife. They were suffering because of their adherence to the gospel. And so the Apostle Paul writes to them. This is probably the second letter that Paul writes. It's written in the early 50s A.D., we are on Paul's second missionary journey. Now, I've got a map for this because I want you to see this. I want you to see this is a historical event. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. I want you to see kind of what's going on in actual history. Way back in the book of Acts, we've got Paul and Silas, and they're sitting in Syrian Antioch. I call it Syrian Antioch because there were at least 11 cities in antiquity called Antioch. It's kind of like George Foreman's kids. They're just all named George. They just ran out of names and said, that one's going to be Antioch, and that's going to be Antioch. So they're in Syrian Antioch in what is today Syria, the northern parts of, north of what is today Israel. And they set off on their second missionary journey. They go into Galatia. That is the central region of what is today Turkey. There they collect a guy named Timothy. Timothy was 
introduced to Paul on Paul's first missionary journey, but on the second missionary journey, Timothy saddles up and rides with him. He goes with him. They pick up Dr. Luke in a place called Troas. That's northwest Turkey on the coast. Then they cross over into Europe, and they go to Philippi, and they establish the first church in Europe, the first church in Western civilization. But they've been beaten up and imprisoned in Philippi, so they have to leave rather quickly. They go through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they go to Thessalonica. There, Paul in, um, enters into a synagogue. There was no synagogue in Philippi or Amphipolis or Apollonia. So he goes to the synagogue in Thessalonica, and he says, My brothers, Jewish peoples, I have such news. You've been waiting for the Messiah. And they say, yes, yes, the Messiah is the hope. Yes, the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. Yes, the Son of Man from Psalm chapter 2. Yes, the Son of Man, the, the Messiah that will come and conquer Paul says, I have news. He has actually come, but he's not what we expected. And they say, what? What do you mean? Yes, it happened in Israel. Well, Israel's a long way from here. Tell us what happened. And so he explains that the Messiah has come, but not as conquering king, instead as suffering servant. And they say, this is incredible. We haven't heard this. Come back next Sabbath. And so he does. He says, not only did he come as suffering servant, the Bible, the, the Old Testament law and prophets were pointing to this. We just didn't know it. He had to suffer and he had to die and he did, <gasps> but he's alive and I've seen him and he is alive and he is a death proof king and he will come again. They said, this is incredible news. Why don't you come back next Sabbath and tell us more? And so Paul did. We get all this from Acts 17. He comes back and he says, brothers, the Messiah has come. He was a suffering servant. He died. He is alive. And guess what? This is the best news of all. He's also for the Gentiles. And then they pick up rocks to throw him in his face. Because that's the one thing they could not tolerate. And so they, ins they ensue a riot. They drive Paul and Sim Timothy and Silas out of town. A guy named Jason has to post a bail bond so that Paul's released. Paul goes down to Athens, and finally he makes his way to Corinth. But apparently, Paul leaves Silas, or Silvanus, in Berea to, to uh, encourage and to comfort those folks. And he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica because he's so worried that that first little group of fledgling believers might fall away because of their suffering, because of their opposition, struggle, and resistance. So Paul sits down to write 1 Thessalonians, probably his second letter that he's ever written. Let's pick up very quickly. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, now you know this, but when you read particular New Testament Pauline epistles, when you see the therefore, you have to ask yourself, what's the therefore? A therefore. Well, he's referring back to everything that he said in the first two chapters. I'm not going to review all that. The important part is that he has just written to these people and told them that they, these Gentile Christians in Europe, these Thessalonican, Macedonian Greeks, they are his joy and crown. This is Saul of Tarsus, Jew of Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees, tutored under Gamaliel, the greatest rabbi in Israel's history. And he's calling this ragtag group of Gentile believers in Thessalonica his joy and his crown. Why? Because he says the power of God is getting it done. It's happening. It's actually real. It's actually happening. These are people in Thessalonica that for all eternity I will never not know. Now, that's interesting and instructive. That's how Paul began to think of others. And I wonder for us as a church, do we think of other in that way? Therefore, since you are my joy and my crown, he says, chapter 3, verse 1, when we could bear it no longer. 
So Paul's heartsick. The, the term is, I could literally not stand up under the pressure anymore. He goes to Athens. It's the first time he's ever been completely by himself. He has to leave Athens. He goes to Corinth. In Acts 18, we are told that he finally connects with Priscilla and Aquila. They encourage him. They start making tents together. But he's already starting to argue with the Jews in Corinth. And he's just heartsick about the people back in Thessalonica because he was ripped away from them prematurely. The term is like he was orphaned. He had to be torn from them, and he didn't want to. So he says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer... We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. Now, I want to I tell you something kind of cool about the gospel. Paul says, and don't rush past it, we could bear it no longer. We made a decision. Now, sometimes we have a tendency to over-spiritualize the lives of biblical characters like Paul or Peter or David or Samuel or Moses or Abraham or whomever. Here's the reality. Paul was heartsick, and so he made a decision. We almost sort of expect Paul to go, I was so heartsick, I was so burdened, I couldn't stand up under the pressure of worry about you that I fasted for three days, and then I called a prayer meeting, and then we listened to a whole bunch of Keith Green cassettes, and then I got my highlighters and my Instagram and my coffee and my Jesus Calling devotional book, and we did all the things, and then we waited for God to, no, he just made a decision. Did you know that you can do that? <laughs> the decision that he made was in keeping with wisdom, it was in keeping with righteousness, and it was in keeping with the character of Christ. And so he didn't even have to pray about it. I hear people talk about, oh, the gospel is so binding, it's so restrictive, religion is so, re it's just, no. More than 80% of your life is not included in the pages of Scripture to know what you're actually supposed to do. But when you simply walk in wisdom, is what I'm contemplating, is it, is it wise, is it righteous, is it in keeping with the character of Christ, do it. Should you also pray? Absolutely. We'll find out later that he actually prayed night and day without ceasing because it was Paul and he's better than me. But he also was just able to make a decision because he felt so burdened for God's people. So can I just if you've got a burden for God's people, you don't have to wait for the sky to tear open and God to say, love my people. He's done it. Again and again and again already. So Paul says, when we could not stand up underneath it any longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. Paul's going to sacrifice his own creature comfort, his own encouragement to send Timothy back to Thessalonica to encourage him, and he's going to risk being solo. He's going to sacrifice for the sake of others. That's instructive. Verse 2, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker. Can I tell you something? God's co-worker. If you've got a recent translation of the Bible, which I kind of hope and trust and assume all of you do, you're going to see God's co-worker. But for about 1,800 years, <laughs> that translation was not present. It, it was so scandalous. You can't say, Paul, that Timothy was God's co-worker. God alone does. And then we just sort of, you know, mindlessly follow along. No, no, no. The word is God's co-worker. As though God and Timothy are working together. You know why? Because they are. And when we endeavor to minister to serve God's people, we are actually working in conjunction and partnership with God himself. It's that big of a deal. And so Paul, he's killing two birds with one stone. He's, he's establishing Timothy because this letter that Paul's writing is going to be read out loud to the congregation in Thessalonica, and Timothy's going to hear it. 
So it's encouraging him. It's encouraging them that Paul is doing everything he can to not raise up a public stink. Paul would have been noticed. Timothy's young and he's sort of nondescript. He's not going to cause a problem for Jason and the other Thessalonians. But it's also for Timothy to get some reps, to get some time on task, doing ministry in a real context so that he himself can be strengthened and equipped and experienced. We sent our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. That's pretty high praise coming from the Apostle Paul. To establish and exhort you in your faith. To help you continuously be persuaded. You see what he's saying? Not that you would believe for the first time, some of them perhaps, but that you would continue to be deepened, thickened, widened, and broadened in your belief. Be increasingly persuaded all of your life. It's okay to be increasingly persuaded. I used to think that. Now I think it more so. I used to believe that about God. Now I think it more so. And it gives you more confidence to stand, to have security in all of your interactions. Verse 3, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were destined for this. See, what's happening is apparently some of the Jewish leaders in Thessalonica and some of the wealthy Gentiles were telling the people who had become believers in Thessalonica, hey, things are hard for you, aren't they? Things are, wouldn't it just be a lot easier if you just gave all this up? You know, your buddy Paul, he's down in, in Achaia, the, the Greek province where Corinth and Athens are. He's really struggling. If he was telling you the truth, you think your alleged supposed God would be letting him go through these bad things? If your God is so good, how come Paul is suffering? Why are you suffering? And Paul was terrified that they were going to begin to listen to those little whispers of prosperity. Paul says, I couldn't have it. You knew this was going to happen. I was only there three and a half weeks, but Paul very early and often baked in the expectation of resistance, of suffering. He bakes it in right at the beginning. Verse 4, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand. <laughs> when you become a believer, things get hard. When you become a believer, things get hard. Oh, by the way, when you become a believer, things get hard. Anyone else who tells you differently is selling you something. Don't buy we told you this from the beginning, that we were going to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. There's no surprise here. This is not out of the ordinary. This is what we are to expect. And there's still joy there. Verse 5, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, second time he tells us of his struggle, when I could no longer stand up under the burden and the weight of what was happening with you, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. And again, it's not like the devil was showing up in Thessalonica and ringing the doorbells going, blah, 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 blah. No, he was just glancing little subtle blows of, hey, it doesn't have to be this hard. Give it up. You don't need the gospel. You're fine. You're fine. You're fine. The tempter is active, and he's clever, and he's insidious. But it's interesting to me, and not just me as a pastor, but anybody who's involved in giving the gospel ministerially with children, with a family, with any kind of ministry, the biggest fear is that of futility. And it's okay for Paul to say that to the Thessalonians, and so therefore it's okay for me to say that with you. And it's okay for anybody who gives the gospel with frequency and normalcy to say, man, the biggest fear is that we peddle and we give and we proclaim and we preach the gospel, and then to hear the stories of that guy that I baptized 15 years ago has made a flaming wreckage of his life and he's renounced everything. Oh, that is acid in the lungs. And so Paul says it, my biggest fear is that it was only three and a half weeks, 
but I was afraid you guys had pitched the whole thing. Some of you who are parents, you know what this feels like. Some of you who are spouses, you know what this feels like. It's very similar in ministry. We have the fear of futility. Is the gospel taking root? Is it flowering? Is it flourishing? Well, verse 6, we're going to pivot. But now that Timothy has come to us from you. So there Paul sits down in Corinth. You get the sense that he's been pacing back and forth, waiting. How are they? Oh, my gosh. How are they? Oh, my gosh. How are they? Oh, my gosh. His Snapchat's down. He doesn't know what's going on. He's just waiting. But then Timothy comes. Verse 6. Now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith. Timothy brought the gospel. It's the only time in your New Testament, evangizo, is used for something other than the gospel. It's the same word. Timothy brought the gospel. It's the only time in the New Testament it doesn't mean the content of the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ, redeems to himself and to one another, that Jesus became flesh, that he lived a perfect life in thought, word, and deed, and he atoned, he propitiated our sin at the cross, that he imputed and supplies all of the righteousness of heaven, that he is alive again and he will return. That's the gospel. But here, almost of equal force, Paul says, I was so worried for you that Timothy brought the gospel, that you guys were still flourishing and flowering in the gospel. It's an astonishing comparison that Paul makes, how important it is to him that the hearers of the gospel continue to grow and to go. Timothy brought the gospel, the good news, he says, of your faith and love and reported that you also or always remember us kindly and long to see us just as we long to see you. That love was not requited. I don't know what the opposite of that is. I guess quieted. Or re- I don't know what it is. It was returned. Paul was so afraid that he had done all this investment of time, energy, and emotion, and that they had written him off. No, but they were equally eager to see him. And the space, about 200 miles between Corinth and Thessalonica, became holy ground. Because these two pockets of everlasting souls had affection and attention for one another. Now that's worth living for. It's worth dying for but it's certainly even worth living for. Sometimes that's harder. Verse 7, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith, that you are continuing to walk and march forth. You believe this, you're living like it's true. Verse 8, the hinge of this chapter. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. It's a little Greek play on words. Now that I know that you're standing up, I can stand up. Now that I know that you are still alive, I can live. That's not how we usually think of the Apostle Paul. Now, certainly this little epistle is where we get a lot of our doctrine and ecclesiology and how we actually do ministry, but we must not forget, it's also a letter from a person to some people for a purpose. And this is very personal for Paul. And he's saying, because I know that you are still believers, I can pretty much face anything. I can take on the world. And I will just tell you pastorally, ministerially, if I hear and know that the people of this campus and congregation are flourishing, I'll lay down in front of a slow train. Bring it. It's fine. It's so encouraging to hear that. And so Paul gets that. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. And verse 9, it's such a strange little verse. Let me help. 
He says, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? It's a weird verse in English because it's even weirder in the original. Paul basically says this, what am I supposed to do? God's given me more joy than I can possibly be grateful for. That's what he says. That would be the literal. God's given me more joy because of you than I can possibly express gratitude. That's how joyful I am. This is Paul. Can I remind you? Paul was murdering Christians. That was his career. Right on his business card, Christian killer. And now I have been given so much joy that you believe that I can't even adequately express in thanksgiving to my God. That's a lot of joy. And I wonder, it's convicting, it's compelling. Do we think of one another thus? Or do we just kind of think that we're in one another's way? I think we might be missing out on a lot of joy that God actually intends for us. Verse 10. As we pray most earnestly. Okay, so uh, no, it's the only time this word's ever used in the New Testament. Pray most earnestly is like super, 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 super pray. It's, he makes up a word and he just packs on all these prefixes to say, I like, I really, 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 really pray for you guys. Boy, that's convicting and that's compelling as a pastor, as a guy, as a husband, as a father, as a friend, as a community member. Just to go, am I characterized by this level of fervor in prayer? Short answer, no. Long answer, mm, no. We pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. What I'm praying for is the opportunity to continue the work of instruction, of edification, of exhortation, and encouragement. I want contact. I want impact. I want to see you react. I want contact. I want impact. I want to see you react. I want contact. I want impact. I want to see you react. That's what I'm praying for, to supply what is lacking. Mm, kind of. It's this word, catartizo. It's the same word that is used when Jesus calls his disciples. They are on the seashore mending their nets. They are catartizoing their nets. Or when a doctor sets a broken bone, he catartizos it. Paul says, you got it, you're good, but there's so much more. I need to set some broken bones. There are some things that are incorrect, I want to fix that. There are some things that are incomplete, I want to supply that. You are on a battlefield ministerially. I want to supply whatever ammunition, whatever sustenance you need to continue to win the battle. The tempter, the armies of hell have come after you in Thessalonica and you little ragtag bunch of gospel rebels have repelled him. Oh yeah, baby. I want to go back and I want to I want to fill up whatever you might possibly be lacking. So I pray fervently night and day. Now that's how Paul thinks of the church. Is that how we think of the church or do we just kind of go, "Oh no, they're in my seat." <laughs> Verse 11, Paul at long last pivots for the first time in this epistle to prayer. Oh, and it's a good one. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus, incidentally, that's high treason, to call anybody other than Caesar Lord is a capital offense. Paul cares not. <laughs> Jesus is Lord. This is a very clear declaration of deity and divinity. Jesus is God. And Paul goes, oh, and by the way, it's kind of cool. Like, uh, I know him. He smells tremendous. He's really smart. Yeah, I can't wait to see him again. May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. You know what's really cool? 
Sometimes in Scripture, we see prayer like this, and we see it answered. In Acts chapter 20, we're told that Paul, after his third missionary journey, does get to go back through Philippi and Macedonia and to spend some time, and he just bawls, and he just weeps. It's pretty great. God does direct his steps to see them again face to face. And, verse 12, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for himself. Nope. That's what we would kind of expect it to say. Nope. What is God's, what is Paul's great prayer for these people that God would do in their lives? Not that they would love him more. Oh, interestingly, no, that he would make, he would make your, make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. That you would love one another individually, that you would have a care, concern, and a compassion for the entire congregation and for all even those who are outside looking in, who have replaced intimacy with intensity. Pre-Christians, we might call them. I pray that you would increase and your love would abound more and more for one another. Now, 1 Thessalonians 3.13 is a shocker. So that, this is why I'm praying this. This is what I want to accomplish. In your loving one another, he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Whoa. Friends, brothers, and sisters, we think way too little of one another. C.S. Lewis was right. He said, you've never met a mere mortal. You have met an immortal. And if you saw them the way God can see them, you would be tempted to fall and worship. Paul says, my prayer is that you would increase in love one for another so that at the coming of Christ, every single one of these five chapters in 1 Thessalonians ends with the mention of the coming of Christ. But how is your heart going to be set blameless in holiness at the second coming of Christ? By how well others have loved you. Not how hard you've tried. Not how much doctrine you can spew. Not how many times you can win Bible Jeopardy. How well have you been loved and loved God's people? That is what establishes your hearts in blamelessness so that nothing is held against you at the coming of Christ. And what all does that mean? Well, these people had a bunch of questions and they had the need of encouragement. Paul takes three chapters to give them some encouragement They've got two primary questions. Those will be answered in chapter 4 and chapter 5. We call that in preaching a cliffhanger. you got to come back next week for those. He leaves them with an encouragement, with an exhortation. I pray that you will continue to love one another more and more so that your hearts are established in blamelessness, in holiness, because it matters. Do you really believe that he's coming back, Paul seems to ask. Do you really believe that he's coming back, or has this stuff descended into myth and legend and lore to you. If you really believe that he's coming back, Paul says, then it should look like day by day, evening by evening, moment by moment, loving one another more. I've got no use for the church or the people thereof. It is a terrible, gross misunderstanding of who Jesus is and what he's doing. We want to be in the act of encouragement, contact, impact, React. Let me give you just a few quick principles how we can apply this text to our lives. Number one is super practical, and it goes like this. We are not pragmatic. In other words, we do not interpret God or his will by our circumstances. 
We cannot, we must not assume that God is displeased with us or our conduct just because we're experiencing opposition and struggle and resistance. Again, some of these detractors in Thessalonica, probably the Jews and their influence, were trying to convince him that Paul was obviously a sham since everything had turned out so hard for him against his plans. But Paul had taught them in advance this is what they should be expecting because the gospel is always resisted. Now, we don't interpret God or his will through our circumstances, but sometimes because of a trajectory of really bad choices, all of your options remaining are hard. Don't blame that on God. But there is no temptation, Paul says in Corinthians, where he's sitting when he writes to the Thessalonians. There is no temptation except that which is common to man. And he will provide a way of escape. You've never encountered, you never will encounter something that God and you can walk through in holiness. Always. Now, you might be experiencing suffering. Peter says in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, if you're struggling just because you're stupid, well, that's, that's hard for you. Sorry, let's walk together in holiness. But we are not pragmatic. We do not interpret God or his will through our own circumstances. Secondly, it goes like this. Faith. The word shows up several times in this little epistle. Paul says, I want you to have faith. I want to develop your faith. I want you to have faith. I want to build your faith. Well, what is faith? We do this periodically at this campus, but I want to help remind us of the three different elements that make up the molecule of faith. About a half a millennia ago, a bunch of evangelical scholars, in response to what they perceived was incomplete mention of what faith is in Roman Catholicism, they said, hey, let's help understand. Here are the three elements that make up the notion of faith. First is understanding. Do you actually understand the content of what we confess such that it actually makes sense? There is a God. He sent his son, who is God, who became a man, who lived his life and thought, word, and deed perfectly. And he died to atone for our sin. And his finished life of active obedience, perfect sinlessness and holiness, he offers that completed life to us. And he died. And he rose again as the stamp of approval. God said, yes, I agree. He's alive and he's alive forevermore. And he will come again. Do you understand all of that? Do you understand it perfectly? Probably not. Neither do I. But do you understand such that it makes sense to you to the extent that it can? That's the first element. Second element is called agreeing. Do you agree that that actually happened? That it's not just a myth or a legend or lore. That when we say 2,000 years ago, there is this historical event that Christ came. This is why the Jews could not imagine that Christians were claiming that the cosmos was created by a human. Well, he wasn't human at the time, but he became human. But it was offensive and gross to the Jewish mind. The Greeks could not believe that Christians were saying you had to believe in an actual historical event. The Greeks said, no, you must adhere to an ethic or a philosophy. You can't tell me that I have to just believe that some historical event occurred. Yes, I am. Do you understand the gospel? Do you agree with the content that we confess? And then thirdly, do you trust it? Do you live your life like it's actually true? Do you look at the world like that's actually true? Do you love in the world like it's actually true? Those are the three elements of the molecule of faith. Understanding, agreeing, and trusting. So I invite you to faith. And that it would always be deepening, broadening, and growing. Do you celebrate that when you see it in others? Do you make it known to others that it's happening in you so that they can rejoice? This is part of what it means to be the church. Thirdly, let's talk about joy. (laughs) 
It's not original to me, of course. This is very old, but it's still true, and so we're going to use it. Joy. What is the secret for joy? Jesus, others, you. That's the sequence. That's the prioritization in a life. Jesus, others, you. When you intentionally contact, impact, and react. One writer put it this way. When we gather as the church, we're reminded of our reconciliation to each other, and we are revealing God's work of reconciliation to the world. We first start with Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We look at the cross. What did he accomplish? We eagerly anticipate and wait for his return. It starts with Jesus. He is the Son of God, the author, perfecter, and completer of our faith. And then just what we see in this epistle, 1 Thessalonians, we focus on others. What is God doing in you? What is God doing in you? What is God doing in y'all? What is God doing in us? We focus on others where we see people beginning to flower and to flourish in the gospel. And then finally, long last, yes, of course, there's a necessary priority for ourselves. Jesus, others, you. That's how we begin to experience and enjoy joy together. I've had the opportunity a couple times recently to visit some of our campus life groups. And oh my gosh, every time we walk out of there, I'm just shocked and stunned at how amazing these people are and how they're sharing life together, enjoying one another's time company, gathering around the gospel, studying God's word, praying together. And I walk out of there just utterly just bulletproof just bursting and beaming with joy. And if you haven't gotten a part of that kind of, of a community, I want to invite you and exhort you to be a part of one of our life groups. Fourth and final point, that's quite simple. It comes right out of this epistle, is prayer. Now, one of the things they told me in seminary eons ago is whatever you do, don't just tell people to read your Bible and pray more. They get that. They're not going to do it, but just don't, don't beat them up. So I'm not going to do that. I'm saying the way Paul prays for his people is a model for how we are to pray for one another. Did you hear what Paul was saying? Praying that they would love one another so that their hearts would be established in blamelessness, in holiness at the return of Jesus. And so here's my challenge to you. As you're about to fall asleep, as you're waking up, as you're going about your day and your mind just goes to idle, I will challenge you to ask the Lord to flash some faces in front of your mind's eye. Just, just some random faces. And that you would pray for them. God, would you establish her heart in blamelessness? For when you send your son Jesus. Would you establish her heart in blamelessness? For when you send your son Jesus. Would you establish his heart in blamelessness? For when you send your son Jesus. And as every face that the spirit of the living God flashes before your mind, you would just pray for him. It doesn't have to be a whole 20-minute King James prayer. Just would you, would you strengthen his heart in blamelessness so that when your son returns, I, I get to high-five him because I was praying for him as a demonstration of our belief and our faith that Christ will come again. And I can just promise you, and if I'm wrong about this, email mike at bethelbible.com. I promise you, if you will do this, you will increase in joy and your life will take on a flavor like never before. This is the act of encouragement. Let me pray for us, and then we'll have a word of benediction, and we will be dismissed. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you've done in Christ to redeem and to reconcile us to you and to one another.
So Father, I do pray if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, who has not yet previously understood or agreed or trusted, that you will give them the gift of faith. They would step out of doubt and disbelief into being persuaded and believing, out of death into life. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who has never been publicly identified with the covenant community as someone who has stepped out of death into life, who needs to follow your ordinance of believer's baptism, would you give them the courage to talk about that with someone they know or love or trust? For the rest of us, Father, would you again and again and again rekindle anew our affection and attention to one another so that our hearts are built in blamelessness and holiness at the return of your Son. And even so, we say together, come, Lord Jesus. We pray all these things the only way we can, in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.